0: Come on. All right.
1: Now, I don't want them to gain another yard.
0: You blitz all night. If they cross the line of scrimmage, I'm going to take every last one of you out. You make sure they remember forever the night they played the Titans.
1: Five years ago, we lost, all of us. We lost friends,
0: we lost family, we lost a part of ourselves. Today, we have a chance to take it all back. You know your teams, you know your missions. Get the stones, get them back. One round trip each, no mistakes, no do-overs. Most of us are going somewhere we know. That doesn't mean you should know what to expect. Be careful. Look out for each other. This is the fight of our lives, and we're going
1: to win, whatever it takes. Good luck. He's pretty good at that,
0: right? I am William Wallace, and I see A whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! (laughs)
1: Well, those scenes are what Hollywood script writers call the battle speech. Now, you've watched these kind of movies and you've seen those kind of scenes. On the eve of the big game or the big battle, the the coach or the captain or the commander gathers his troops around. The stakes are high. The odds are stacked against them. They stand no chance. But as the soldiers circle around, the heroic leader stands up. And out of his mouth, slowly at first, but then gaining strength, comes words of inspiration. And he will say things like this I know you are scared, men. I know it looks like we can't win, but a line must be drawn right here, right now, today we are canceling the apocalypse. Are you with me, men? I know it's not going to be easy, but failure is not an option. So grit your teeth, seize the day, never surrender, the world will know, fight, fight, fight. And what does he do? He speaks courage into their hearts. And those soldiers, man, they, they roar out onto that battlefield, and in that charge they are ready to win the day. Now can I just be honest? I am a movie nerd, and I am a sucker for a good battle speech. And when I am in the movie theater watching one of those kind of movies, at the end of that speech, man, I am fired up. I mean, my hair is standing on end, and I am ready to charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun. Are you following me here? And in the movie Gladiator, it's General Maximus who gives the battle speech. And in Lord of the Rings, it's King Aragorn himself. In fact, in fact, can I tell you one of my favorite moments as President Uh, This was six or seven years ago, and our Ozark men's soccer team was playing in a tournament out at Schifferdecker Park, and so my family and I went out to watch them, and we got there at halftime, and they were behind. They were losing, and so our team was sitting on the bench. They were tired, and their heads were hanging just a little bit, and so I came up behind them just to say a a quick word of encouragement, and when they saw me coming, they all turned around, and they're like, hey, Mr. President, Presidente, Mr. Proctor, and I'm like, hey, guys, man, we're so proud of you. I know you're tired, but, but don't give up. We are cheering for you, and then I turned. to to walk away. And just as I did, that's when one of them said, wait, 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 give us a speech. Give us a speech, and all the others chined in, yeah, speech, speech, give us a speech. Now, now, I do not know any soccer speeches, and I am not a coach, but I am a movie nerd, and I do know a battle speech. And so in my mind at that moment, I went straight to the Lord of the Rings. I went to the last movie, Final Battle, before the Black Gate. Aragorn is on his horse. He has his sword in his hand. He's riding back and forth in front of the troops, and, and, and I know the script. And so, I kid you not, this is absolutely true. I looked those soccer boys in the eye, and I just started striding back and forth in front of their bench. And and listen, they're all standing up. They're turned around. They're looking at me. They're leaning in. Their eyes are wide, and I channel my inner Aragorn, and I let them have it. Men of Ozark, men of Ozark, I see in your eyes the fear that would take the very heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails and we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day, an hour of wolves and shattered shields, when the age of men comes crashing down, but it is not this day. No, this day we fight. And I kid you not, at that moment, those guys went bonkers. I mean, they started jumping up and down. They started cheering. They're slapping each other on the backs. They're going crazy. And then they ran out onto that that soccer field, and they played their hearts out best game of their life, and they won the game. And in that moment, I'm telling you, I have never felt more like a warrior king. (laughs) I could have died and gone to heaven right there. I got to give the battle speech. Now, all semester long, we have been going through this book of Deuteronomy, and we've called this series, Trust, Obey, Conquer. That's the message of Deuteronomy. Trust God, obey His commands, conquer the land. And in our text today, Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're at that last word, conquer. Moses is is standing in front of Israel. Their 40 years of wilderness wandering is done. They are now poised on the edge of the promised land. Their enemies are spread out before them. They know the war will begin soon. They're supposed to go in and conquer. But Moses knows that they're also scared. Now, Josephus tells us that in his younger years, Moses was actually General Moses. He was a commander in the Egyptian army. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he's an old man. It'll be General Joshua who actually leads Israel in to conquer the promised land. But right here in Deuteronomy 7, listen, Israel is outnumbered. They are outgunned. The, the Canaanites have giants, and they have a powerful military. And Israel's just this ragtag bunch of slaves, and the odds are against them. And they are afraid. And Moses knows it is time for old General Moses to stand up and to give the battle speech. And so I want you to listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them Then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. Burn their idols in the fire, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How, how can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hands and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear." The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. He will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven and no one will be able to stand against you. Now, that, that is a battle speech right there, Deuteronomy 7. And if I could put the big idea of this battle speech in a sentence, it would be this God's people must fight to claim every square inch for him. Can I say that again? God's people must fight to claim every square inch for him. Moses here is saying, go, destroy the Canaanites, claim every square inch of the promised land for God. And in just a few minutes, I want to to preach that message. But first, I got to deal with the problem. Because a lot of people, when they read this text, when they read Deuteronomy chapter 7, they ask this question, why would God do this? How could God give this command? How can he order the destruction of the Canaanites? Isn't that genocide? Isn't that ethnic cleansing? Isn't this cruel? How can this Old Testament God of wrath be the same as the New Testament God of love? And it's listen, it's actually a really good question. It's an important question, and I want to try to answer it. And to answer, I actually need to start by circling a word there in our text. If you got your Bible open, it's in verse 6. God says, he says, destroy these people, destroy their idols. Why? Because you are people, here's the word, Holy to the Lord your God now that word holy is huge you probably know that that word holy in the Bible means something that is set apart something that is belonging to God and because it belongs to God it has to be fully completely 100% pure when something is holy it reflects God's purity because it is God's property Now, my dad has a master's degree in meat science. I'll bet your dad doesn't. And my dad's job uh, for 30 years, he worked in the food industry, and he directed quality control for a food company. Now, you may know that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, oversees food purity in our country. And my dad's job is to make sure that the food his company produced met the FDA standards of purity. Here's the problem. The FDA standards of purity may not be as high as what you wish they were. I have right here in my hand the actual FDA standards for a few, a few food items. Let me, let me just share these with you. Apple butter. Now, the FDA says that if apple butter averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams, then they will pull it from the shelves, but you understand what that means that if it averages three rodent hairs, that apple butter gets sold and goes right on your English muffins, baby. (laughs) Coffee beans, right? Now, I don't drink coffee, but some of y'all drink coffee. You need to know this, right? The FDA says that coffee beans will be withdrawn from the market if there is one live insect in each of two or more consecutive containers on the shelf. But you know what that means? If there is a live insect in every other container on the shelf, that gets sold, and you're not going to know, because when you stumble out in the morning and make your coffee, you're blurry-eyed. You're not looking at anything. You just drink it, and you go, ooh, that tickled on the way down. Now you know why, all right? Here's another one. Mushrooms. Mushrooms. The FDA says mushrooms cannot be sold if there is an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams. Which, of course, means if there are 19 maggots, that gets sold and goes right on your pizza. One more, one more. Hot dogs. No, I'm kidding. I did not look that up. You don't want to know. I don't want to know. Here's my point. The FDA tries to set their standards high, but they are not absolute. The FDA allows for a little impurity. Listen to me. God's holiness does not. His holiness allows for no impurity. It demands 100% pure. God's holiness tolerates no sin. God's holiness is life or death serious. In the Old Testament, when Nadab and Abihu walked into the temple, in the presence, into the tabernacle, in the presence of a holy God, with unauthorized fire, what happened to them? They died. When the oxen stumbled in the Old Testament, and Uzzah reached up, well intentioned to steady the ark of the covenant so it didn't fall off the off the cart, what happened? He died. A holy God dwells there. You can't touch that. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, what happened? They died. When the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, that one day a year, what would he do? He would tie a rope around his waist. Why? Because he was going into the presence of a holy God. Everybody knew he could die. And if he did, we ain't going in after him. We're just going to drag his body out. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has his vision and he sees God high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple, what does Isaiah do? He falls on his face in fear, begging for his life because he's a man of unclean lips and he lives among a people of unclean lips, and his eyes have seen a holy God. Listen to me. God's holiness is life or death serious. Holiness is God's defining characteristic. It's his only quality that is, that is listed in triplicate in the Bible. The angels in heaven do not go around singing constantly, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. No, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus never once, when he was here on earth, prayed, loving Father, but he did pray, holy Father, Listen, God's book is called the Holy Bible. God's spirit is called the Holy Spirit. The land that the Israelites are getting ready to go into is called the Holy Land because it belongs to God. And that's why it must be pure, no idolatry. God is not the FDA. He is not okay as long as there aren't, you know, five or more Asherah poles per square mile. No, God wants 100% holiness. He is fiercely, blazingly pure, and He is good, and He is great, and He is worthy of all your love, and He is worthy of all your loyalty. And listen, God will allow no rivals. If you want to be His, you must be all His, and a holy people belong wholly to God. That's why God ordered the destruction of the Canaanites. And can I, can I break that down just a little bit more? God ordered this destruction, first of all, as a judgment for the Canaanites. They were wicked, and, and listen, every sin is an abomination to God, but some are more abominable than others. These Canaanites, their idolatry included things like witchcraft and, and the occult and bestiality and the sexual abuse of children, and worst of all, human sacrifice of children. They killed their own kids from little babies up to children four years of age. They would literally place them on the bronze hands of their idols and burn them alive in the fire. And these, these Canaanites had had hundreds of years since the witness of Abraham living among them, hundreds of years where they could have run towards the one true God, but instead they had run further and further away from God, and his patience has run out. They have violated his holiness long enough, and the wages of sin is death. This is just punishment from a just God. This was for the judgment of the Canaanites. But secondly, this was for the protection of the Israelites. Now, I'm a, I'm a dad of, of six kids, I need to tell you that when kids are little, they can't withstand temptation. Now, I know that some people think, oh, you know, kids, look, they're so innocent. No. All right. If you say that, it means you don't have any kids. Little kids are terrible. All right. They are, they are selfish. Uh, have you been around toddlers? I mean, you've heard of the terrible twos, but I'm telling you that teenagers are even worse. All right. Toddlers are just bad, and they're pint-sized little sinners. They are depraved. Example. When my daughter Caroline was two, she knew that she was not supposed to get into our pantry and just help herself to the food, to the cookies and the crackers. But one time my daughter Lydia walked into the pantry and there was her little sister Caroline, two years old, sitting on the floor of our pantry with crackers strewn all around the floor around her and she is just sitting there happily eating her crackers. Well, when she realizes that Lydia's come in, she sees Lydia, realizes that she's busted. You know what Caroline did, two years old? Caroline looks down at the crackers on the floor and she says... No, no, no. And then she smiles back at Lydia, and then she just sits there and keeps eating more crackers. And she knew it was wrong, but she couldn't withstand the temptation. And listen, if we didn't want her eating those crackers and cookies at that age, it was on us to put them up somewhere where she couldn't get at them for her own good. That's the way it works with little kids. Well, listen to me. Right here in our text, Israel is an infant nation. They are a toddler. They have no self-control. And God knows that the temptation of Canaanite idolatry and immorality would be too great for them. In fact, in fact, he knew that the Canaanites would actively pursue them. They would try to entice the Israelites like a drug dealer trying to get new customers hooked on his product. And left to themselves, these Israelites would get tangled up into all kinds of unholiness and destruction. And so for their own good, God removes the temptation. He drives these spiritual drug dealers out of the neighborhood. This was for the protection of the Israelites. But listen, here's the last one. Ultimately, why did God command this? It was for the redemption of all the ites. This this command from God is ultimately going to save the Hittites and the Grigashites and the Amorites and the Termites and all the other ites that are listed here. God did not say, go kill the Canaanites, because he hated Canaanites. This wasn't about their nationality. This isn't a genocide or an ethnic cleansing. I mean, for crying out loud, Jesus had the blood of a Moabite woman named Ruth and the blood of a Canaanite woman named Rahab running through his veins. This wasn't racially motivated. It's not about skin, it's about sin. And ultimately, God is trying to save these nations from their sin. Back in Genesis chapter 12, you remember this passage. God told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. Why? So that he could bless all the nations of the world. So in God's plan to save the world, before he could redeem the Canaanites, he first needed to create this holy people called Israel so that he could bring Messiah into the world. And that's why God ordered this war. He had to cleanse the land because the holiness of Israel would bring the hope of the world. He is protecting the Israelites so that he can save all of the other ites. And so that someday those Canaanites and Perizzites can someday stand around the throne in Revelation chapter 7 with people from every tongue and tribe and nation and sing salvation belongs to our God. That's why God gave this command and that's why Moses gave this battle speech. And you remember his idea. God's people must fight to claim every square inch for him. Now listen to me, Ozark. We are still in a battle for holiness, and the fate of the world is still at stake. We are not God's Old Testament people that are driving out sinners and fighting for a holy land, but we are God's New Testament people, and we are driving out sin, fighting for a holy life. The Israelites were fighting to claim every square inch of Canaan for God, but we are fighting to claim every square inch of ourselves for God. Why? To save the world. The, the whole message of Deuteronomy is be holy, be distinct, be different from the culture around you. Why? Well, yes, to honor God, but it's also to point other people to God, to be alike to the nations. And sometimes, sometimes we think that to reach other people for God, we have to identify with them. You know, if we're just more like them, if we can find more points of similarity, hey, look, see, we're not so different. No. The message of Deuteronomy is this, we do the most good for the world when we look the least like the world. Holiness is what catches the attention of a watching world. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. We have to fight for holiness to honor God and to save the world. And so Deuteronomy chapter 7, listen to me, listen to me, this is our battle speech. And so, in just a few minutes that I have left, can I do this? Can I, can I apply this? Can, how are we supposed to fight for holiness? Let me, let me do this. Let me pull four phrases from this battle speech to guide us in our fight for holiness. Here's the first one. Moses says, fight the battle little by little. Fight the battle little by little. Now, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, he did it in one swift stroke. Red Sea, uh, Egyptian army destroyed But the strategy for defeating the Canaanites here is actually a little different. In verse 22 of Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God will drive these nations out before you little by little. You're not going to eliminate them all at once in one stroke. It will be a process of many battles over many years, and that's the way our fight for holiness works, little by little. Now when my son Carl was, was two years old, he was about to turn three. There were a lot of people that would ask him um, about his upcoming birthday. And, and, hey, Carl, how old are you going to be? Three. Oh, you'll be so big. And he heard this over and over again. Oh, you're going to turn three. You're going to be a big boy. Oh, you'll be so big. And because of these conversations, Carl got a wrong idea in his head. This is what he thought. He thought that on his third birthday, he would automatically get a growth spurt. Now, now I understand why Carl wanted to be big. If you know any of us, we proctors are a short people. (laughs) My dad is five foot six inches tall. I have two younger brothers who are both a little shorter than me. And until just a few years ago, I was literally the tallest proctor on record in my whole entire extended family. That's not a good thing. That's like saying you're king of the midgets, all right? No big deal. I get why Carl was hoping to all of a sudden shoot up and be big. And this is what happened. On Carl's third birthday, I kid you not, he woke up that morning, he got out of bed all excited, he looked himself up and down, and when he realized that he was the exact same size, he started crying. He was weeping uncontrollably, and finally we we asked him and we understood it was because he literally thought that he would go to bed the night before, roughly three feet tall, And the next morning on his third birthday, that he would just wake up 6'5", 230 pounds, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. (laughs) And he was bitterly disappointed. He wanted so bad to be instantly big. And so, true story, for his fourth birthday, we bought him a ladder. That's true. (laughs) Now, here's the rest of the story. Carl is actually now 18 years old. Carl is 6 feet 2 inches tall. He's 240 pounds. He is now the tallest proctor on record. But that took 15 years. Now, you've seen those, those growth charts. Maybe you had one of these in, in your home where you kind of mark the height off every year. And the one in our family has this big, tall ostrich on it. And if you were to look at that growth chart, you would see Carl's name year after year, little by little, growing taller and taller and taller, some years more than others. And that's the way spiritual growth works. Sometimes, listen, I know sometimes God gives deliverance from sin in one swift stroke. The alcoholic who prays a prayer and then never again wants another drink. Praise the Lord, that's fantastic. But for most of us, transformation happens little by little. And even then, it will only happen if you fight for it. It won't happen on its own. John Orberg tells a story uh, about uh, a guy in a church where, where he once served, where he once preached. And this guy's name was Hank. And he said that Hank was a harsh man. He was was easily irritated for years. Hank judged, and he critiqued, and he complained. And I want you to listen to what John Ortberg writes about this man. He says, Hank was not changing. He was once a cranky young man, and he grew up to be a cranky old man. And even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everyone simply expected that his soul would remain withered and sour year after year, decade after decade. No one seemed bothered by the condition. No consultants were called in. No emergency meetings were held to probe this strange case of the man filled with the Holy Spirit who wasn't growing in holiness. Oh, we did have some expectations that he would affirm certain beliefs and attend services, give offerings, avoid certain sins. But here's what we didn't expect. We did not expect that he would progressively become the way Jesus would be if he were in Hank's shoes. We did not assume that each year would find him a more compassionate, joyful, gracious, winsome personality. And so we were not shocked when it did not happen. Listen, that's a tragedy. What they should have told Hank is this. This is not okay. Hank, you need a battle plan. You're not gonna just naturally get more holy on your own, on your own obviously. Hank, you're not going to drift your way into spiritual growth. You're not going to accidentally become more Christ-like. you got to fight for it. And when you cross the Jordan into the promised land, when you enter into the Christian life, you cannot be content to just camp out there by the river and never go in any further. No, you got to fight your way deeper in. I've uh, I've been reading um, the latest book from from John Piper. You may recognize his name. He's kind of a legendary, you know, preacher and and Christian leader and Christian author. John Piper is 74 years old. He's been following Christ for almost seven decades. Now, you'd think that by this point, he'd kind of be able to put his sword down and rest for a little bit, you know, kind of hit cruise control. But I love the title of one of the chapters in this book. He's talking about himself, and this is the title chapter. Learning late in life to know and kill my most besetting sins. And in this chapter, he talks about how at age 74, he is still, with God's help, examining his soul every day. And he's still naming his sins, like anger and blaming and self-pity and sullenness. And he's still putting those sins in the crosshairs so that he can kill him. Listen to me, Christians. We are called to fight the battle every day, every week, every year of our lives. This battle is not done in a day. Spiritual growth does not happen overnight. But don't be discouraged by that. Don't give up. Don't give in. Every day, put on your armor. Every day, pick up your sword. Every day, set spiritual goals. Every day, pray. Memorize God's word. Build Christian community. Practice confession. Slay bad habits. Build good habits. Ask God's forgiveness again and again and again. Worship Jesus again and again and again. Holiness sometimes is three steps forward and it's two steps back. It's fallen down six times and getting up seven. But keep getting up. Keep fighting inch By inch, by inch, claim every inch of your life for Christ. And over the years, this this territory that we call our life slowly but surely will become holy ground. It will become God's. And years later, when, when we check your spiritual growth chart on the wall there, we will see that, well, look at that. You really are more patient than you used to be. You really are more joyful. You really are more kind and selfless and courageous and more pure. And you are growing closer and closer to Christ. Fight the battle little by little. Here's the second phrase. Moses says, fight the battle with no mercy. No mercy. That's what God says to the Israelites here. He says, destroy the Canaanites. Verse 2, he says, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Now, in our fight for holiness, sometimes we show mercy to some of our sins. There's There's a comedian named Steve Allen, and one time he said this. He said, I am loyal to a fault. I have a great many faults, and I am loyal to every one of them. <laughs> and sometimes that's our attitude. We, we tolerate sin. We make excuses. Well, it's just one of my vices. Well, that's just my, my personality. And we kind of make peace with it. We're okay with it. I'm, I have a friend one time. He was shopping in a, in a men's store. He was looking for some dress slacks. And he noticed that some of the dress slacks said wrinkle-free, and some of the dress slacks said wrinkle-resistant. And so he asked the sales lady, he said, hey, what's, what's the difference? What, is, what does this mean, wrinkle-resistant? And she said, wrinkle-resistant. Well, she said, that means they will wrinkle, but they will try really hard not to. <laughs> and that should be us. In this life, we will never be perfect, we can learn to sin less, but we will never be sinless. We will never be sin free, but we can be sin resistant. We, we can try really hard not to. We can fight against sin. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? When Mrs. Potiphar saw this, you know, hubba hubba handsome hunk of a Hebrew guy and she tries to seduce him, you remember this story. What does Joseph do? Now, now, there, there, Mrs. Potiphar. Now, now, you know that we shouldn't do that, but, but what's wrong? Are things hard between you and Mr. Potiphar right now? Come come on over here, sit down on the bed, tell me all about it. Is that what Joseph does? No, the Bible says that Joseph ran. All right. the Bible says flee from sexual immorality. It doesn't say skip away from sexual immorality. It doesn't say stroll away from sexual immorality. It says flee, Christian. How long do you linger in the face of temptation? I heard one preacher say that in the face of temptation, if you hesitate, you will contemplate. If you contemplate, you will negotiate. If you negotiate, you will participate. And if you participate, you will devastate. So don't hesitate flee. Get out of there. Romans 8 says, put to death the misdeeds of the body. That that should be our goal. I will put this sin to death. But some of us, if we're honest, we actually have a different goal. We, we kind of inwardly say to ourselves, well, I'm going to try not to sin very much, which is kind of like trying to you know i don't want to drink very much poison i don't want to have very much cancer a soldier going into battle hoping he doesn't get hit by bullets very much no god says don't tolerate sin don't get comfortable with it at all make no treaty with it no mercy if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away if you are not killing sin sin is killing you so you heard the battle speech from captain america whatever it takes You heard the battle speech from that coach and remember the titans, not another yard. You heard the battle speech from Moses himself. No mercy, drive sin out. Fight to claim every square inch of your life for him. Here's the third phrase. Moses says, fight the battle under God's mighty hand. Now Moses uses that phrase, God's mighty hand, two times, verse eight, verse 19. And what he's saying is this, he says, listen, Israel, I know you're afraid of your enemies. They're bigger, they're stronger but you have seen what God's mighty hand can do. You're not fighting this on your own. The Lord will deliver you. Listen to me. Ozark, don't fight the battle for holiness in your own strength. Can I tell you one of my favorite jokes? Um, Heard the story of of a burglar who broke into a house in the middle of the night. He's flashing his flashlight around the living room looking for things to steal when suddenly he hears a voice. Jesus is watching. What in the world? He froze. He wasn't sure where this voice was coming from. And and then all of a sudden he heard it again right there in the living room. Jesus is watching. What? Well, he he slowly lifted his flashlight up and he shone his light towards the voice. And there, hanging from the ceiling, was a birdcage with a parrot inside. And that parrot looked right at that burglar and he said it again. Jesus is watching well, the burglar, you know, he kind of breathed a sigh of relief. It's just a, just a parrot. And as he relaxed, his flashlight actually dropped a little bit, and it revealed right there underneath the birdcage sitting a great, big, huge Doberman pincher. And he heard that parrot say, sick him, Jesus. <laughs> I love that story. Listen, listen to me, Ozark. When the devil comes at you, you do not try to take him on on your own. You don't try to take him on in your wisdom, your strength, your virtue, your willpower, your job in that moment. It's to say, sick him, Jesus. You can't handle the devil. He can. There's no problem, no challenge, no temptation too big for God. Lean on him because when you are afraid, he will give you courage. When you are confused, he will give you guidance. When you're guilty, he will give you grace. When you are weak, he will give you power. When you are weary, he will give you strength. When you face temptation, he will give you self-control. Listen, John Piper says the gospel is not a help-wanted ad, as if God were looking for a few strong men. The gospel is a help-available ad. Don't fight the battle on your own. Fight it under God's mighty hand. Here's the last phrase. Moses says, fight the battle as his treasured possession verse 6 Moses says this he says fight Israel fight why because the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured possession do you know what the most powerful motivation for holiness is it is the grace of God Titus chapter two for the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright holy and godly lives I do not fight for holiness to somehow earn God's attention, to earn His salvation or His grace or His love. No, God has already given those. God has already said, I love you. He's already said, I will deliver you. He's already said, I want you to be mine. You are my treasured possession. We fight for holiness because we are grateful for grace, because we are grateful for the cross. Because we are grateful at this Christmas season that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to this earth. And boy, you talk about trust, obey, conquer. For 33 years, Jesus trusted his Father. For 33 years, he obeyed every single command in Deuteronomy. And for 33 years, he fought to keep every single square inch of his life claimed for his Father. And then, then came the greatest battle of all on a battlefield called Calvary. And at the end of that day, it looked, it looked like he had lost that battle, beaten, bloody, naked at the mercy of his enemies, thorns in his head, nails in his hands, and his feet, spear in his side, dead, stone, cold, dead. And they threw his body in the tomb and they sealed it with the stone and that's that, defeated. But three days later, that stone rolled away and Jesus Christ stood to life. And suddenly, the entire cosmos realized that in the greatest plot twist in history, Jesus' defeat had bought victory. In his surrender, he had won. His loss was our gain. And by being crushed, he conquered. He conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered death itself so that we could be his, his treasured possession. That's why we fight to claim every square inch for him. And if you need a battle speech today, I know of no better one than this. Jesus fought for you. You fight for him.